Welcome to the Sports Squire Podcast, a platform engineered specifically for you to deliver content relative to the fields of training, performance, and rehabilitation. Challenge the status quo and raise your game through changing your mindset and your action. As you embark on your journey as a sports squire, subscribe to the show to get real-time updates to new episodes. Don't miss an opportunity to apply what you've learned today. Explore, engage, learn, implement, benefit. This is the way of the Sports Squire. Welcome to Sports Squire. I'm your host, Brad Howe. I'm a former collegiate athlete, exercise enthusiast, and physical therapist in the realm of orthopedics and sports rehab over the last decade. Episode 18, The Role of Sports and Culture in Society with Justin Petty. Justin's back on the Sports Squire radio platform to spit his knowledge again on just the role of sport and how that helps us to develop our individual presence. And he's going to take a deep dive into the collective uh, impact that sports can have in general. So grateful to have Justin Petty back on the Sports Squire platform, here to spit his knowledge on positive and sports psychology. And today you guys are in for a treat because this is a, a different format that we're, than we're used to. I think this is going to be more of almost like a classroom type setting that all of you are going to get to to really uh, take advantage of of Justin's expertise in teaching and his passion for teaching. And as an overview today, we're going to talk a little bit about intrinsic motivation, the role that sports plays in culture and society today. And then Justin's going to talk a little bit about Simon Sinek's uh, why to to how to what. Is that right, Justin? That's right. Awesome. Well, Justin, thank you so much for coming back on today, man. It's a pleasure to have you back. Yeah, good to be here and uh, excited to share some of this knowledge with uh, your audiences. Absolutely. Where do you want to get started today? So I think we start just in talking about and kind of positioning the current moment. I think uh, a lot of our motivation is also contextual when we're thinking about this. And um, we got to think about the spaces we create for ourselves in these conversations that we're going to have today. We'll kind of keep coming back to that too, but um, creating spaces for ourselves to kind of analyze our motives a little bit, right? And, uh, and, and we, we don't do that so well um, just day to day, right? Caught in the wheel. And so um, I, think, I think that's going to be a kind of a critical point that we make. Um, and what that space looks like, like you need then, okay, what am I doing? What am I, what am I sort of progressing through question wise? Um, and so I would just say that I think that if you understand your, your life in America, right, we're just a busy culture, like we're so good at staying busy that, um, and things move just kind of so fast in and around us, like with motivation and especially intrinsic motivation, when you're really kind of digging deep into who you are and why you do things, you know, taking that big step back is such a critical thing for us to be able to do. Um, and this is kind of what, what one of my colleagues refers to as positive selfishness, right? Where we, <laughs> we oftentimes feel guilty about, yeah. you know, taking time for ourselves. And, um, you know, the whole kind of trend of, of self-care, I think, is, is tapping into that sort of, of mechanism just because it was such a need. Like, you know, you shouldn't feel too selfish if you've got to, like, take a night off as a parent or, you know, take some time off as an athlete. And in a lot of ways, it makes you better at that. And so, you know, again, how does that sort of factor into my life and my schedule? And how am I making time for that separation so then I can work on myself, so then I can come back and be this better, whatever it might be? That's so interesting to hear you say that because, like, I think most people think that's a selfish, like like you said, it, it, that's a selfish thing to, to want to take time. 
and in, in, in your uh, you know platform of teaching and and consulting, how much do you speak about reflection and going inward and kind of taking a break? Because I I do feel like what you said, like this is just such a busy culture that we live in. It's just, you know, I think if there's anything during this time, hopefully we've learned during COVID is that, you know, it's okay to slow down a little bit. And, uh, you know, I think there are, have been some, some silver linings throughout this time in regards to kind of, you know, editing your life and trying to figure out which things fit and which things don't as we get out of this, this, uh, COVID pandemic. But what does that look like? You know, is that, is that something that we have to be coached up with in regards to, to reflect on a regular basis? Um, I think in our culture, in a lot of ways, we, we do. And, you know, if you're more of an extrovert, like that might be a little harder for you because you love connecting with people. And that's where you get your, you know, emotional drives and thrills. And um, inwardness may not be your thing. Uh, for an introvert, it's a little easier. Um, they can sometimes be better at cultivating that space, whether it's just, you know, by sheer necessity um, or it's something they've done a little bit more intentionally. But for me, um, I was an only child as well. So that kind of factored <laughs> into just like, you kind of had to have that sort of inner voice and, and, and a little bit more of maybe a, a rich inner life. Um, and then I also just through my educational experiences, um, especially through Jesuit education. So, um, being a teacher at, at Burbuff, um, as a Jesuit school, not a lot of people know what that means in the, in the, even in the Catholic church, there's, there's some confusion about who these Jesuits are. And essentially they're just a branch of the Catholic church that, um, their first role in the world was just going out and, and being missionaries to a lot of Native American tribes. But as part of that, they also had to learn those languages, entrench in those cultures. And a big aspect of, of the kind of Jesuit mechanism of, of spirituality and Christian thought, and to me, they're the most similar group probably to, you know, Buddhists and monks that we have in Christianity. So I think it's also a really kind of a special bridge between maybe Western practices and Christianity and Eastern practices and Buddhism and religion. But um, I think the, the key focus with, with Jesuits is that we reflect a lot because reflection is the point where you can not only analyze yourself and your values in terms of what you're learning, but it also gives you like a moment of also looking back, but then looking forward, right? And that's always the game that we're trying to play in kind of Jesuit education is, okay, you've learned something like this. What does that mean to you? How does that connect to your experiences? And then how are you going to essentially project that forward into your future self and who you want to be? And then also, how are you going to use that to help people? Those are kind of the, the layers of questions we want our students asking uh, whenever they're learning anything like this. Because if it's just something that makes you better and not the world better, is it really you know something worth holding on to? Hmm. Um, if it only benefits you and not the world, is that really something that's even worth learning? And so, you know, it really does help to maybe trim the fat off of like what's most important to us and what's most important to our kids in the context of what can be shared with the rest of the world. And I think that's a really powerful process for anybody to be going through. Um, and it's certainly, you know, when we're going through fluctuations with things like COVID, there's, there's a lot of misfortune, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of suffering. But we also need to understand that like underneath it, you know, there underneath all of that coal, right, is that diamond. There is that gift, but it takes time and it takes the right questions to get to that. And it takes silence and it takes space. And so I think, you know, this quiet time that COVID's kind of afforded us, right, <laughs> through, through, you know, no choice of our own, really, um, it does open up at least that that feeling of what it is to stop, what it is to not be busy. And hopefully, you know, audiences have been able to, to kind of appreciate that and then also do some reflection right whether it's it's something where it's quite literal you're writing things down 
This also gives us a chance to what I call free associate, where it's just if something pops into mind, right, it has a chance to pop into my mind and I'm conscious of it. And now I can do maybe a little bit more work or analysis on that, especially if it's anxiety, right? I don't see even something like anxiety is so pathological the way we want to say, oh, I have this disorder. I, you know, I'm Doesn't sick. everybody have anxiety? <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, thing. some people suffer a little bit more than sure. others, right? Sure. And, and for some people, you know, stressors are going to be just harder to deal with and cope with in, in and around that. They have more sensitive, you know, nervous system reactions to things. And so I think those things are good to keep in mind. But, you know, fundamentally, too, if you're anxious about something, that could be the first sign that something's wrong or something needs to change. Right. Or, you know, maybe I'm doing something that doesn't have a much meaning to me and I just feel like I've, I'm forced to do it. Um, and so I think making those recognitions, even about, you know, your nine to five job or about a certain relationship um, or whether I continue my athletic career, or I'm doing this or that. Uh, I think those are all really, really healthy things. And anxiety can be that sign of like, hey, I need to do this. But if we don't follow that lead a little bit and kind of listen to our bodies and reacting to, you know, the world or our own thoughts, even um, we may miss those opportunities and then that anxiety can get worse. And now it can become something pathological, you know, if it's if it's kind of allowed to fester and you're not really given much support or structure to kind of analyze that. And I think that's one thing that um, I just I think anybody can benefit from. And, and certainly when we're talking about performance situations, like that's a really good process for you to be constantly engaged in. And it's always right. It's not like mm -hmm. something we can ever feel like we're done with. We always want to be done with stuff. We want yeah. to check it off the list. Right. And like I don't have to look back. Um, but this is that, that constant process of just kind of breakdown and renewal, right? And we see these themes or breakdown and rebirth. We see that a lot throughout religious practice. And we certainly feel that a lot, just I think in our daily lives, right? An exhausted yeah. week of work is part of that process. And then you have that weekend to sort of put yourself back together. Um, but what are we really doing when we're putting ourselves back together? What does that look like? Is there a better way to do that? Or are there certain questions or practices I can implement to get more out of it and to feel maybe more whole that Monday when I come? back to be that better version of myself and then that process will just grow on itself and grow on itself until I think you're closer to becoming what you want to become you know whatever mm -hmm. that might be for you so with with the whole idea of uh, analysis paralysis you know I, I don't know how much this plays into this but you know I I, I don't know how much of this is just um, ingrained in our brains as we're developing as children and then into adults but like you know I've had my wife, Carly, and no knock on her several times throughout our marriage, say, put your big boy pants on, you know? And, uh, you know, I think society sometimes tells us, hey, there, there is a stopping point where you need to just kind of stop feeling sorry for yourself. I don't know how much feeling sorry for yourself or how much analyzing or how much reflecting plays into what you're talking about, but can there be a paralyzing um, over-reflection that can happen as well? Yeah, most, most definitely, especially when you're talking about, you know, sports performance and, and at a high level where there's just a lot of pressure uh, and you have to think and act quickly, right? That's kind of the, the beauty of sports, too. It, it doesn't allow you the, the luxury of, of, you know, sitting with something for too long while performing. Um, but this also gets into, like, creating a very specific time and space yeah. for that work. And that will also help you put those limitations on yourself where you don't get stuck in that constantly, right? Because now you're kind of burning energy and, and not going anywhere. When you right? mentioned as more of a renewal process, right? Mm -hmm. Can you go into that a little bit more? Like what, what is that? What do you mean by that? Yeah. So typically when we're feeling, you know, broken down, beaten up, um, unenergized, unmotivated, essentially, you know, maybe even a little depressed, um, 
that process of renewal, like and, and kind of pulling ourselves out of that depression, it does require some some analysis oftentimes. And that means like, again, what do I believe? You know, how has that change maybe due to the this course of, of actions that have happened or course of events in my life? Um, and, and there are kind of a set of questions that we're going to go through a little bit later today um, to kind of guide your audience, you know, through what that process really looks like and, and things that I've had my students and athletes do um, to kind of help themselves not only maybe deal with failure in better ways, but um, just to get more out of that failure, too. I, I'm, I'm teaching an entrepreneurship class right now, and I always like to talk about how entrepreneurs are really, really good at screwing up. Like, they're great failures. <laughs> Getting punched in the face several times a day. Yeah, yeah, but it's like, what are you doing with that? And, and what's your process for dealing with pain and suffering and trauma? Um, and if you don't have a process, then it's going to act on you, right? You, mm -hmm. you become kind of controlled by it. And so I hope to just, I think, to truly empower people, to make them, you know, free people uh, in their lives and in their culture. I think they need that, that sort of sequence of questioning to take themselves through. And, you know, it's a pretty simple process. You've, you've alluded to it with, with Simon Sinek's Golden Circle, um, kind of that starting at the why, at the center of our being, at the center of our system or organization or our team, and then working outward from there. And that's kind of a beginning template. Uh, but that's also it's also a part of, you know, what are my goals and looking at my my, you know, external versus my internal or my extrinsic and intrinsic goals. You know, that's kind of a core part of that process. But a lot of us don't really take time to, like, put that on paper and then figure out, like, how we're going to live a life accordingly and plugging those things into and as well as our values into our actions. Right. Um, and then also carving out time in our schedules for specifically things like family or for my mm -hmm. inner work or for my, you know, physical body um, and, and not necessarily being so, you know, what, what I would call like uh, somebody who's left brain who can be kind of type A and like so controlling of your time that it has mm -hmm. to happen now and here. And like, that's also not very healthy. Yeah. And so like giving ourselves enough cushion and flexibility and, you know, even patience, um, but also like being deliberate with ourselves enough to, you know, put the big boy pants on yeah. and like, yeah. Step so up she is right. She is kind of right. Okay. Oh geez. You hear that Carly? <laughs> <laughs> to, but to, you know, you got to at some point like step up and do the work, whatever that work right. is. And sometimes that work can be stepping away from, you know, what you traditionally think of as work your job right or maybe your role as a parent um, to do that inner work because that's also work and so um, you know and I think having a partner that holds us accountable to all of those things is really really critical but if we're only being held to account to fill maybe our you know parental duty or our duty as a husband or wife um, and our duty as a worker or employee that still misses some pretty big pieces of the pie when we're talking about your identity when we're talking about your motivational spectrum and kind of who you also want to become, which not a lot of these people have access to that. Like mm -hmm. you do, you know that, you know, but we aren't even so good at, at maybe articulating that stuff to ourselves. And then we can begin to kind of articulate that to others. And I think then life can kind of fall into that place. But it really requires us kind of going through some serious questions. Um, and not all of those are going to be comfortable. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I feel like I'm laying down on a couch and you're rubbing my temples right now, <laughs> just so you know. Uh, a lot of wonderful stuff in there. So as we talk about just kind of the root of motivation, you know, I, I'm, I imagine a lot of that you just spoke about kind of ties into that. What foundational type principles really play into how we are motivated? Well, and I think it's, it's first kind of going to this question of like, how do I measure success in my sport, Right. How do I measure my success 
today, this workout? Um, how do I measure my success in school, right? Mm -hmm. Again, today, this week, this unit, right? This month, this semester, um, in my relationships, at, again, at work, like in thinking about what are these internal and external dynamics at each level. But that's kind of the question that we first ask ourselves. And it's easy to jump to, to the external metrics because external stuff is easy to see and it's easy to measure. And I think our, our culture in some ways has sort of maybe afforded a lot of that through statistical analysis, through video, right? We're kind of bombarded by the external. And so the real work has to be done on the intrinsic and the internal mechanisms of this. Um, and then I think first though, we get to these kind of roots of motivation where yes, a lot of our, our motivation is, is evolutionary. And like we talked about in our, in our last episode, um, movement is a big part of that, right? And, and in the current situation of COVID, like motion is critical just in getting us going and getting thoughts flowing, getting blood flowing. And I think we understand those dynamics, but then there's also kind of the social side of this. And so we need to spend some time thinking about, especially as adults, you know, where maybe we weren't having our needs met as children, because a lot of that stuff comes back into our motivational spectrum of why we do things, right? Um, especially when it relates to other people. And then uh, the second point of that is how are we not only uh, being rewarded and punished through that process of being a good athlete, or again, being a good um, parent or being, you know, strong in relationships. Like, what did that look like? What were the relationship dynamics between, you know, my mother and my father? Like, growing up, like, those things spell a lot of threads that connect to everything else that we do. And um, sometimes we aren't afforded some of that knowledge or information. Like, we don't know what was happening to us during those years. Uh, but nonetheless, I think we can still garner some sort of observations to our kind of question of why, you know, from those early dynamics. And then as well, we're doing a lot of observing and mimicking at those ages. And so, you know, who were our observational models? Um, who are our role models, both in media, in the home, at school? And, um, you know, are those the right models to have? Uh, some of us don't like to maybe look back and uh, see people that we possibly valued or looked up to as maybe not the best example for us. Yeah. Um, they don't have maybe the best reactions to things. Uh, but that can be a tough pill to swallow. And so I begin a lot with just kind of early life analysis and then kind of working through some of those questions and, and relationship dynamics that were between mom and dad, even between, you know, your parents and their parents. Um, I see a lot of, of things that sort of come out of that. And if you don't understand some of those things, um, again, you can kind of fall victim to them because you're not aware of how they're working on you. Well, no doubt about it. I mean, I think for a lot of us, I mean, the most pain we probably had was during our developmental years, right? Where we're trying to figure out our own identity, mm -hmm. trying to figure out, you know, where we fit within our family, within, you know, the, the society and, and what we're trying to navigate, what degree to pick, what career to go out on. And, and I look, and I've said this in, in previous episodes before, but there's, there's some individuals that are, unfortunately, they have uh, very rocky starts. And with, with those out there who have very painful pasts, what is, what's, what's some encouragement or some, some advice that you can give that person that maybe didn't have the family unit or the, the space to, to, to even reflect and have that period of renewal like you just spoke about? Yeah, I think one of the first things we have to do is in some ways maybe learn to be proud of our experiences. Um, not to feel sorry for ourselves, like you mentioned earlier, not to feel like a victim of chance and probability. Um, 
and that's a starting point for at least empowering yourselves through your experience right and that's that's kind of the one of the kind of key sort of stepping stones whenever you're starting therapy is getting you to accept the things that have happened to you um, try to embrace them as much as possible because if you don't if you shy away um, if you avoid then that makes you typically more of an avoidant personality that could be avoidant of intimacy with other people which will you know hamstring every relationship you have including you know with children with uh, your fellow employees with your friends certainly with a spouse but then it's also something that we have to look at a little bit more deeply and kind of go okay uh, once I've embraced that it still hurts right and you kind of have to keep reliving that moment in ways especially if it's deeply traumatic and this is a hard thing about therapy is that you know, we may have to take you through some of the roughest memories over and over again. And this is also what we need to do a little bit with our own self-analysis. <laughs> and then eventually we kind of train ourselves to rethink our reactions to those things, right? As long as we've got the right guidance and support through that process, we have to kind of empower ourselves through that. And we find that the greatest athletes, a lot of the strongest businesses and entrepreneurs, some of the best parents, I know certainly some of the best teachers in the world and the people I work with, a lot of them have been through tough stuff, but that's what's been that spark to inspire them to go out and really want to help people, save people, educate them, and be a support system that maybe they didn't have. And to be honest, like that's a bit of my path in life. Like that, that was my calling. And so that came from not today, it's a, a source of great inspiration and creativity and so many other things for me. But it began in the dark and it mm -hmm. began in pain and suffering um, and, and me trying to find a way out not being able to really find somebody to help me with that. And so yeah. it became a very just individual process. And that inspired me to dig deep in myself, dig deep into books and research um, to answer the questions that I had that weren't being answered by my teachers at the time or the books I was reading, music I was listening to, coaches I had, you know, and even my own family to some degree couldn't help me with that. And so um, I thought, you know what, who, who, if nobody's going to help me, then I got to help myself. And then mm -hmm. as I started to sort of unravel some things, I thought, wow, what a gift, what a piece yeah. of gold to be able to take out there and just share with people in every single way I could. And, you know, it's kind of led me back here to you. So, and, and this is what's so awesome. I mean, it's just, uh, you've obviously developed this level of expertise and, you know, just listening to you now, I mean, it's just, I, I, I wonder why it's such an innate, um, response to just suppress you know, the, the pain and the darkness that we feel when we go through things in life. And I think a lot of times we feel that if we suppress it, we'll forget about it. That isn't necessarily the truth, right? There's got to be some level of subconscious stress that's going on. Yeah. And, and, uh, <clears throat> I think I might've mentioned this phrase last time, or it was at least coming to mind. But, um, when we talk about trauma, we got to know that trauma and pain and suffering, like that's in our tissue, right? That's in our nervous system. And that stuff gets embedded. So even if you have a traumatic experience from, you know, age three or four and yeah, it happened a long time ago, but it's like still happening in your system, right? More often than not. And so what does that mean for you? It could mean more anxiety, but in ways like anxiety is also energy. And so that could yeah. be energy now that you can ride in, in becoming some great, you know, person in your field, or again, mm -hmm. to become a great parent or to be a great nurturer or giver, like that's i think where some of that overflowing greatness that we see with people sometimes or you know whatever that their capacity is i think that sort of overflow is, is again coming from something else that's really dark and really tragic and really painful 
but that stuff also keeps you really focused on like what's important to me right now you know in the near future um, and I think a lot of us could probably attest to the fact that yeah we made these big big changes in our lives um, in terms of even our value systems our spirituality you know when we had some really really tragic experience happen around us um, and that sort of adds that that unshakable foundation that we have when we look at like man how do, how did they how did they perform under pressure all the time it's like it's probably because they've been in a situation that's been much more pressurized sure. and, and has many more consequences associated with it compared to that moment, which you're seeing on TV, which you're making maybe a lot bigger. But to that person, if they're able to deal with it like that, like they've kind of transcended their pain and now their pain is their strength. And yep. now that strength is allowing them to become great. And I see that pattern play out in so many people's lives as well as with, you know, some of my greatest students. Um, they've been through some stuff. They've had personal experiences that have really shaped them and made them different and unique. But oftentimes we don't feel that way when we're in pain, right? We feel, yeah. if anything, we feel like the opposite of that. And so how do you sort of create that bridge between pain, trauma, and suffering, you know, and greatness and what we call in psychology um, post-traumatic resilience if we want to get technical with it? Um, but you know, resilience isn't just something, it's not something you'll, you'll be able to gain from a book. Like it does have to come through getting drugged through the dirt and, and experiencing quite literal pain of some sort. Um, and you know, we don't wish that on anybody, you know, no doubt, like we would love everybody to have great parents and a great life and a job and all these things. But we also need to respect the fact that a lot of greatness comes out of that darkness and comes out of that struggle. And uh, yeah, I think that also is empowering. Just that thought in itself should empower some of the listeners. If you have gone through something like that and you are struggling, like that's what we talk about when we're talking about transcendence and embracing some of that pain. And as you and, and it may take a lifetime to fully understand that, right? Mm -hmm. It may take you know a whole lifetime, but nonetheless, it's the process, the journey. And as long as you're kind of doing it right with the right supports in place, um, it can be something that's really empowering for you. And that can truly be that separating factor between kind of you and the world to make you unique, original, and kind of this person that you've always set out to be. Sometimes we got to get drugged through the dirt. No, there's no doubt about it. And I've got a, I feel the same way with my personal pathway and kind of what's brought me up to this point and what drives and motivates me. And, you know, you spoke last episode as well about, you know, some of those, uh, those disciplines kind of molding you from the inside out, you know, and, and almost creating, um, you know, a level of, of, of persona because of, um, you know, the, the sacrifice and, and the pain and the disappointment and all the different things that you go through. So tying this in, because obviously the, the material that you use and what I love about this is that this is, and it's kind of cool in your field of study that this, your, your psychological principles and just the ability to be able to understand why, you know, we go through some of these things in life and why we respond in different ways and, you know, how we're all different and how we can better understand ourselves. But, you know, for the sake of, of just tying this into kind of sports and, and culture and society, you know, I think you, you can take this wherever you, you want to take it. But like, I, I look at all of those, or I, I think about all the things that you just said in regards to, especially sport related, like athletes who are really good. I mean, you and I both could just literally probably list individuals that we went to high school with, we went to college with, we played pickup ball with on the playground who were incredible. Um, but at some point in time when, you know, life was thrown at them, whether it was too much stress in the classroom or 
too much stress at home. Um, you know, they, they ended up folding and, you know, is, is that due to the escape, you know, that, that sports has on, you know, avoiding some of those issues? Um, you know, why do some people make it and why do some people, why do some people not? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when it comes to trauma, I think one of the biggest things is like, who's there to help you with that? Because a lot of these athletes that we've seen, um, who had these experiences and then become great or same thing with entrepreneurs, you know, they, they had some mentor or somebody that, that helped them rethink or channel that into becoming great. Right. It kind of helped them make that, that turn that coal into that diamond. Right. And, and they had to have that, um, you know, that person there to help them, what we call like transmute that experience, um, or sublimate that experience. Both of those are, are psychological terms wherein you're just taking something that is inherently bad and you're trying to make it into something good. And in this case, you know, something great. And so that person can be, again, a teacher, a coach, certainly a parent, right? People close to you, siblings. Um, but it can also just be like some, some stranger in the street who's done something really nice for you. Like it can also just be somebody like, this kind of instant uh, moment of gratitude that that's shown your way and it, it doesn't even have to do with what you what you do particularly just like feeling loved and supported throughout a process is kind of amazing uh, what that can do for somebody and then again trying to help them and talk them through like the role of pain in their lives and if they don't have religion does this you know really well but if, if they don't have that you know now what and I think putting some of these elements together you know that's the ideal situation if you've got kind of a spirit you know backbone in there on top of some good you know people to support you and again it doesn't have to be your family um, those are kind of the critical ingredients and then you know what types of questions and answers are you providing to yourself right um, in that process and and what sort of growth plan are you on um, to channel some of that effort um, that's coming kind of coming from that anxiety of your pain you know, you, you need to make sure you're not just hiding at your sport, right? And we, and again, we hear this a lot from, from great athletes. They kind of use this to not deal with it, but at some point, like you're going to have to as a person, right? You right. may be able to use your sport to hide for a while, but like typically that stuff pops up and at some point will, will cripple you. And you don't want that to be in the middle of your career, you know, or at mm -hmm. some of those kind of key points, whether it's in high school, college or, or professionally. Um, and so you also are, are like, taking a big risk if you're not dealing with that stuff. And this is also the stuff that's kind of made of the midlife crisis that's made of, you know, these breakdowns we have typically in our late teens and early 20s of just identity crises, right? That's what they are. And mm -hmm. we call it a midlife crisis, but essentially it can pop up at any time. It just kind of depends when those things are coming up for you. Um, but having some sort of plan in place as a parent, as a coach, you know, as a teacher, and there are even things that we uh, that we hear about in terms of just like having a spiritual awakening, mm -hmm. right? This will look like a um, an anxiety attack. This can look like major depression. This can look like all these pathological things that then we may try to medicate. And I'm not saying medication is wrong, but if that's what we rush in to do, I think that may say a lot about how our culture coping a bandaid on it, right? Yeah, it puts a bandaid on it. And that's not what you need to do because your body and mind are telling you something yeah. and even your spirit, if you want to go there, they're telling you something and that something probably needs to change, that certain questions need to be asked and answered. And if you neglect that and you try to mask that with, you know, a, a barbiturate or an antidepressant, um, that can 
maybe even hinder you from finding those answers, right? Yeah. And that's not what we want. And, and we don't get enough kind of paralleling of treating mental illness or whatever you want to call this difficulties also in life. Um, there's not enough bridging between like, okay, here's a pharmaceutical, but also here's the counseling and support and kind of right. somebody to take you through that process. Most, most people just want that pill, right? They don't want to actually do that hard inner work and also take time out of their busy schedule right. to get to that, to get to that question, to get to that, that answer ultimately. And you may not get to the answer, but like the questions are a really big part of keeping your momentum going forward, keeping right. you growing from that trauma and, and kind of keeping things headed in the right direction. Um, so we want to make sure that we also don't self-label too much. Oh, I'm just anxious or, oh, I'm just depressed or right. make it a part of your identity. And that's, that's good if that helps you. But again, don't let that be something that's blinding you to, you know, what, what that's really calling you to do. And, and unfortunately, you know, we're kind of reaching into this, this topic, I guess, too, of like, what's the role then of sports in mm -hmm. our culture? Um, what's the role of sports in society? Um, because I think that's a little bit of what we're talking about, too. Is kind of like how our how our culture sees and views these things, and certainly in relation to movement and sport. And so, um, I think that's that's kind of a, a, a set up topic for uh, understanding that first of all, all cultures the world round and everybody has always had some form of deep crippling anxiety. Um, they were better at anticipating it in many ways. Older cultures, um, in part because they were less busy, they were more connected to each other in a lot of ways. They they would kind of have more appreciation for cultural customs and, and rituals, ceremonies, traditions that would help you move through that because they know and they see it as a phase, right? They see it as an awakening. And think about how you, if you hear the word awakening, think about how different that feels than being pathologized as somebody who's sick and you need treated or fixed. <laughs> Completely opposite, yeah. Completely the opposite, right? Yeah. So even how our culture iterates this stuff to us has a big impact on whether we grow from it or whether we kind of become complacent or or stagnant or immobilized by it right and so even the language right and kind of those cultural expectations that that sort of function around it um it can be empowering or disempowering and so little things like that right if i'm a coach and you can't practice um because you have this this you know issue this anxiety or this depression how am I messaging that to you? What is my role in helping you through that? Yeah. Or is it my role? Again, we don't know. It's right. not, not in our culture for the most part. And certainly in athletic culture, you know, we may send you out to a specialist or, you know, again, yeah. but it sounds like you're sick and you're treated as such. And so I think that can be a really, really big hindrance for people to not only go seek help, um, but also to grow from, you know, those that are around them that are a part of this kind of like, not not necessarily medical support staff, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody who's a psychologist or psychiatrist or social worker even, um, but all of those kind of people that are around us. And, and again, we're talking also about institutions. So even when we talk about the role of sports in a culture, you know, we could also talk about what's the role of school and teachers, yep. and, you know, like all of these things um, and just kind of helping us through those, those, those moments. Because you know what, if you don't help me through it, like, I'm not going to be a very good athlete for you. I'm not going to be a very good student in your class. Yeah. I'm going to be really distracted. I'm probably not going to turn in as much homework. I'm going to get burnt out. Like, now you can't even be these things that we expect you to be, but that's in yeah. part because we haven't, like, fixed the first problem yet. Right. We're trying to, like, just get you through, right? Pass you, get you right. through that next test. And it's in that, 
that's going to be, you know, something that could be really detrimental for that person. And they also kind of feel like you don't care, even though you mm -hmm. really do to them going through that, it can feel like you don't understand and you don't care. And that's when things get really lonely and can get really, really but why, you know, frightening. Why is that though? I mean, is, you know, I think I look at the role of sports and, and all the things that you talked about and, and missing some of those triggers, you know, missing, you know, the opportunity to help a young person navigate through a phase of depression or a phase of anxiety, um, teaching them how to have that renewal. My biggest concern in sports today is that exactly what you just said, what if you have a coach, which would be very normal. I mean, I think we'd both be lying to ourselves if we said we never went through depression and anxiety, right? Mm -hmm. It's a natural cycle of, of what we experience in life, unfortunately, but it's a necessary process that we have to go through. So, you know, if these coaches aren't equipped to be able to navigate those things themselves how are they going to lead people further and that's always been my biggest question and the biggest thing that i've been so grateful for from some of the leaders that i've worked underneath is essentially you can only lead people as far as you've led yourself um, so do you think we're behind as a society to be able to support maybe it's a leading question to be able to support some of these stressors that are happening with these young individuals as they're going through sport yeah, I think we need to think of maybe um, some of these questions of like, you know, what's been the role of religion and education and sport um, just in culture throughout time? You know, you can do this is more anthropological type of work and sociological work. But um, I think that's the beginning point to at least get to more of these answers of like, well, what have other cultures done? Where have they been successful? Like there are several people in the world and cultures in the world that have um, far less medical system and support than we do. Mm -hmm. They have far, uh, far less wealth, right? Far less, you know, free time and leisure time to maybe even do some of these things. Yet they're far more healthy than we are psychologically. And so, <laughs> and physically oftentimes too. Um, and so I think that maybe is cause for a, like a pause. And then in going also like, how does our, you know, um, athletics system compare to even, some of these other cultures and systems, right? What are they doing well? Um, who's turning out some of the best, you know, athletes when we think about psychology, the, the, the you know, psychological balance, performance. And so um, I think that's one kind of component that we can look at. And then in regards to like coaches, it does start with them. And if you haven't done, and I always kind of say this to my students, like, look, if you haven't done your inner work, that's going to impact other people, mm -hmm. right? That's going to impact your kids. That's going to impact your relationships. Um, it's certainly going to impact you and what you're able to accomplish. And if you want to become a therapist, you want to become a psychologist, you want to become a social worker, like that means you basically, you're kind of submitting yourself to that process. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do it, you're not doing your job, right? You're yeah. not fully filling you're your You're a role. phony. Yeah, you're kind of a phony. And if you don't, <laughs> if you can't go to like the deepest and darkest places of the mind, because that's going to be the clientele that you're dealing with. And those yep. are the people that you espouse that you want to help. Um, then that's, that's going to be troublesome for you. And that's going to be difficult. And again, you're not going to be fulfilling, you know, what your ultimate goal is there. And if you're not fulfilling your goal, just like anything else, now you're not going to enjoy it as much. Now, mm -hmm. you, you know what I'm saying? It's going to be kind of this process. And so coaches need to go through that. We need to structure systems to put coaches through some of these things and to kind of take them on what I consider almost like a spiritual retreat mm -hmm. where, you know, there is very little technology. Um, you're not connected to all these other people. It's not a social event. It's a personal event. You may be there with other people, certainly sharing things in small groups and whatnot. 
But I think these spiritual retreats that you're seeing really catch on even in, in evangelical churches. This is mm-hmm. something we, we've done in, in Catholic churches. We even do this at um, at Burbuff, where we take uh, a group of students, and you have the opportunity to do this every year. You have to do it as a senior, and it's going to be a three-and-a-half-day full-blown retreat where you're sleeping a couple hours a night, and you're putting in basically 18 hours of inner work a day for three or four consecutive days. Wow. And it's 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 it's, a, it's totally exhausting, and it breaks you down at every corner of your human existence. But then you really come out of the other side, not only knowing much more about who you are and what you believe and why you want to do what you want to do and having those values lined up and prioritized properly, but then you also are connecting with other people going through that same process. That can be really empowering. Those are things that we can do with our athletic teams. Those are things that we can do with our coaches. And it doesn't have to be that intensive, nowhere near. But if you're not building that time in as a coach with your team, if you're not making time for yourself as a coach to do that for your person to then share with your team, you're missing out on some of that gold that's out there that you can bring back and share kind of these self-discovery moments. And you'd be so surprised at some of the stuff that comes to the surface, not only in yourself, but also in that group. And it may be things that you never thought you could be dealing with as a coach, but who else is going to do it? Where else mm-hmm. is that going to happen in those kids' lives? Like, what time and space do you have or could you make, you know, elsewhere? And it's not going to happen at school and education for the most part. We're right. a private school. We're Catholic. We can kind of do some of that. But I really worry about, like, kids elsewhere, athletes elsewhere. And even our sports teams are starting to do more of these retreats. And so, like, we're trying to bring some of that in. Um, but we still have a long way to go. Certainly a lot more work to be done, mm-hmm. um, but I think it does start with coaches and, and kind of sporting institutions, whether that's schools, whether that's, um, you know, youth programming. Um, this needs to be a bigger part of it, and it doesn't need to be spiritual necessarily, but we can formulate this in ways to make it very scientific, and sports psychology has done a lot of that work for us. Um, I think that's where it begins, because every culture has used sport as a rite of passage, only recently, you know, have we taken sport and turned it into hyper consumerism, hyper individualism. It's all about, you know, me becoming the best I can be. Right. And that's true. Yes. But to a point. Right. Because also, again, is sports just here to serve you and your infinite individual desires? I don't think so. And, and, and more and more, it's becoming that with individual trainers, coaches, you know, everything's becoming so hyper individualized, which can be good in your development. But we still don't get to this fundamental like restructuring of like, what do we want kids to look like when they leave my team, when they mm-hmm. kind of graduate from my program? Right. Like, you know, what are those behaviors? What are those? Who are those actual kind of case study? You know, the kids who epitomize those values in that culture, like, what do they look like? Can you define that as a coach? Like yeah. besides saying, you know, I want people to be, I don't know, good leaders and kind of using a lot of the superficial stuff. Like mm-hmm. we need to get more, much more nuanced in who these folks are that we want to create and, and be really definitive about that with your team. And like, here's why we're doing this guys. Yeah. Like it's a part of making you this. And yep. if you're not bringing them in, even on some of that part of the process, like you kind of miss out on it. Right. It's like, Oh, coach just gave us a, got to read this article and got it. Like you got to yeah. set the stage a little bit and you kind of got to know some of those dynamics. But yeah, that does, you know, include you working through your own stuff. Um, and that's not so comfortable for anybody. Um, especially in the world of coaching where, Coaches are, are very afraid to be vulnerable sometimes to their teams, unless it's maybe a big loss. And yeah, we're all crying in the, you know, in the locker room, like we've been there. Um, but what about the vulnerability when we don't lose? Mm-hmm. When we're, even when we're winning, like, 
I think that's a little bit of, of the rocks that we need to start uncovering in our sports culture. And then we'll also have maybe some better, you know, uh, sense of like self as a, as a masculine identity, right? We've got mm -hmm. a lot of toxic masculinity in, in America and even the American Psychological Association is considering it like pathological, destructive, mm -hmm. harmful to, to so many things. And so I think a lot of sports culture is in some ways tied to that, not necessarily responsible, but feeds it, right? And so um, how do we make younger people also just more cooperative and understanding you're a part of a team and understanding what that means versus like, I just want to make you as, as good as we can, or you're the best player. You need to take the most shots. Like, yeah, but yeah. you know, how do we get to the other side of the coin? And I think that's, that's the real challenge and, and kind of what's drawn me to, to our conversations, to be honest with you, because I don't hear that uh, much out there as far as, as sports culture reform is kind of the way I think of it. Um, but, you know, focusing more on inwardness, personal development, um, I think th those kinds of growth systems or growth models, that's where we need to be steering the ship. Yeah. And I, I just, I, I think about, you know, so many things that happened even during our sports career of, of teammates that we had. And just think about over this last year, you know, maybe your own individual situation, maybe you lost a loved one or you had some traumatic event that happened. Maybe you lost a job or, or something went down. And, and I think, you know, a lot of times in sports, we tend to not focus on the personal side of things, but we, we need to realize how impactful that is to that individual um, and treat them as that individual. Because I think, I just can't think of a better joy in life than serving someone. Yes, helping them to become more competitive and learn life skills and discipline and all the wonderful things that come with sports, but also being able to long-term come back and translate that into life skills that can help other people and uh, I just think that's a huge opportunity in the sports and culture society that we have right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that's kind of the way it needs to be framed. Really. Um, we need to bring more psychologists into that process. Maybe, you know, there needs to be some social science in this because yeah, you're, you're one of the most influential people as a coach that, you know, these young people are ever going to have. And, and what are you doing with that moment? What are you doing with that time? What are you doing with your energy? If you, if you just make it about wins and losses, like, maybe tough to coach for a while like you're going to have your own bouts of depression and anxiety because mm -hmm. like you're kind of you're, you're taking some of the meaning out of it and so when we've looked at cultures you know the world round like yeah they've all had some sort of of meaning through struggle through difficulty like they force their young people to do something really hard right mm -hmm. like every culture has done that and so and we're doing that through sports i think that's probably the best place to do it um but again we don't have the supports that they had in helping you through that and really understanding like what that was. It's a, it's a rite of passage and that's what sports need to be to us. Um, if they're not, it just becomes another kind of version of capitalism in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And, and that's not going to really take you to this place of like growth and personhood and, and really being like a free, fully functioning adult, uh, who's, who's totally mature emotionally, which is kind of the key ingredient here. Um, that's going to restrict you in that. And so, um, but yet you have, I think the perfect moment and, and, and medium, right. If you're thinking about like art mediums, right. I think sports is a perfect medium for personal growth, but, um, yeah, it can get so wrapped up in, in fandom and selling jerseys yeah. and stats and superiority. Um, and again, the wins and the losses side of things that, 
um, we lose a lot of the even teaching kids how to share the ball, how to cooperate, how to communicate. Right. Mm -hmm. These are the, the kinds of skills that I really value as an adult that I pulled from sports. But wasn't overly emphasized to me, right? Wasn't wasn't necessarily something that, that I was taken through, you know, more directly and literally. And we've even seen studies where if you look at how they train young athletes in, uh, if you look at like, I watched some soccer, so like FC Barcelona, right? Mm -hmm. You know, one of these, you know, renowned teams. Um, they train their children in the opposite way that we do. So you see a lot of young kids playing soccer today. It's a lot of like 1v1 you versus them yeah show me you know you, it's all about dribble moves right it's kind of like the and one basketball uh, <laughs> but they this is literally how they're trained from when they're really young it's like well they need to have all these skills they need to be able to shoot they need to be able to and they train there's first thing they train their their young athletes on how to communicate yeah. what words do we use how is language used how do you show respect on the field how do you deal with the teammate who's struggling like this is some of their earliest programming right they teach passing for years notice i say years before they're teaching young athletes to shoot <laughs> we go the opposite and that says yeah. a lot about american culture and i think that says a lot about our sports culture and individualism and maybe part of the problem with not only you know sports in america um not that i don't love them but it, it also points out to like issues that we have around community cooperation yeah. politics like it even religion right mm -hmm. and what in and what's happening there and so i think a lot of those things are also a product of how we're you know kind of defining sports and culture and so it's not just like this isolated thing um it's it touches everything else and so you know even issues around race like well, that stuff is in sports culture right mm -hmm. and some of those lessons are being taught uh, both maybe the wrong way and the right way um but that is still a part of it and i think if we if we don't look at that honestly and have honest conversations amongst our athletic teams sports teams like honestly that's where i heard adults in my life speaking seemingly most authentically and where you know yeah. we were kind of given space to like communicate with others about things that are uncomfortable right and that's such a lacking skill in today's culture isn't it oh I mean, it totally is and everything. i mean it's crazy and you're making me think now because i've got miles my almost seven-year-old son that i'm coaching basketball practice for tonight and i'm like i think i need to rewrite the script tonight <laughs> less shooting more passing more communication and uh you know i think that's a page really out of mike krzyzewski's book and i remember watching a documentary series of uh, that zion williamson team and Cam Reddish, and um, he was telling Cam Reddish, you know, unbelievable player, obviously, top five pick, you know, next year out of his freshman year, but he was quiet and introverted. And, you know, Shashevsky blew his whistle and said, Cam, there's three things you need to do when you come here and you play at Duke. Offense, defense, and communication. You can play offense and you can play defense, but if you can't communicate, you can't play on my team. And it, it was amazing to see through that series how they filmed that how he started to communicate and he started to mature and evolve and how that philosophy is that you essentially can't get messages from, you know, one to the the fifth player um, to be able to accomplish one, one goal. And I just love that, that idea. And, and I just, I feel in general from a 30,000 foot view that sports can, you can really fail in sports, uh, you know, by focusing on the wrong things, but you can really succeed and, making sure that you're, you're focusing on those life skills that can really transfer into so many different things, um, as you and I have experienced uh, in our post-sports post days. 
Yeah, I think it's it's something that that touches so much, right? And um, and and two, you know, sports is is not only feeding and creating culture, but also reflecting it. And so I think it's just good for us to be aware of like those dynamics when we're seeing things play out. Um, not only a lot of the political stuff that's come to the forefront, but also, you know, individualism kind of in some ways like reflects some of the elitism that can come in with sports and who yeah. can get what training. And even these days, like who can play for what team? And I mean, there, there can be so much of that. And, and so, you know, even our socioeconomic classes and those big divides between the rich and the poor, like a lot of that still has some seed, some seeds in, in like our sports experience. Right. And how that's structured and what those dynamics look like. Um, so I think this is also for me, like when we're talking about even something that's that's about race or dealing with folks that were not of my background, like that was one of the most valuable experiences looking back 100%. And, and kind of seeing other adults. It's like I just got to play with a lot of people from not only, you know, around the city, but around the state, country and even world once I became, you know, a college athlete allowed me to, to travel to Europe, allowed me to, um, you know, I've got good friends in China now. And so it's like, it's, it's opened my world in a lot of ways, but I'm so, I, I so value the fact that I got to play with people who, you know, grew up in the gutter to people who, you know, had really nice trainers yep. and like you saw everything in between. And that also just allowed me to like know people and understand them a little bit better, not judge them as much because yep. I've like played right next to that. Like right. I've, you know, loved that guy, you know, yep. it's not him on TV that I'm seeing, but like, I know that person kind of know what they're dealing with. Um, and I think it's definitely made me a stronger teacher and just my ability to communicate with, you know, this person versus that person. And again, at an elite school like Burbuff, yeah, I get a lot of the upper crust, but you know, we also get a lot of kids who come from pretty tough backgrounds. Um, and so we have some teachers that can sometimes struggle with that communication, that can yep. struggle to bridge that gap. And so, um, you know, I, I kind of wonder and, and worry about some of those kids where they probably feel like they're being left out in a lot of ways. And, and again, I think sports can kind of set the table for those conversations and just provide these bridges that we talk about and I think need so desperately, you know, in our dialogue right now. Um, it started there for me, right? That's where I got the experience of the other that, you know, kind of yeah. opened my world and opened my mind to so many cool things. Well, and that's the thing that, you know, I've never publicly, you know, talked about this. I've talked about this with close family and close friends, but, you know, during this, this Black Lives Matter movement, I have been kind of confused internally because of the fact I grew up, you know, with black friends and black teammates and, you know, was raised with a grandmother that taught in Indianapolis public schools for 30 years. And, you know, you're looking here in my, in my, what I call my studio man cave. And I've got Oscar Robertson uh, collage on there and he signed the big O there. And it's because my grandmother that taught there in the sixties, you know, during the rise of racism, you know, and, and was a leader in the community. And I grew up in a household that, um, did not celebrate divisiveness and, um, you know, I was, I was raised to appreciate cultural differences and, uh, you know, for me, so I was really confused because of my personal experiences, um, you know, that, that people could be perceived that way. But, but knowing that there is definitely some people that haven't had those experiences that haven't been able to bridge those gaps and to have, you know, communication platforms to anyone, whether you're black or, or Asian or Mexican or Burmese um, you know, whatever that may be. And that's what I've appreciated most as well. <clears throat> Excuse me as well. I'm choking up here a little bit. It's a little sensitive topic. Um, it's just, you know, how much a locker room can break down everything. 
and, and, and strip it down. And I just wonder why there's not more experiences in life where you can strip down differences like that. Yeah. And, and I always, one thing I really loved when I taught American history was talking about this, like closing this gap of like how we think about the other race, right? Especially post-World War uh, II, when you had so many minority groups and that included, you know, Japanese Americans, Native Americans, but especially uh, African Americans contributing so much in the form of, of blood, sweat, tears, courage, you know, all these things. And you see so many interesting parallels in that um, right after the war, as you'd alluded to in the 60s, right, we've got the rise of the civil rights movement, but that's kind of on the back of the experiences these guys were having, you know, in, in, in the dirt, right, in the trenches going back even to World War I, um, where it's like all of a sudden we had a common enemy. But more importantly, like we spent those times when we weren't fighting, like talking about our families, right, mm -hmm. talking about the people we love. And then all of a sudden we realize, come down to it, we're really not that different. And a lot of the differences are, are sort of kind of cultural, you know, uh, sort of, uh, you know, almost like gravestones that we s still see and we still give attention to. But when it comes down to like when life gets really serious and gets just kind of cut to the bone, like what really matters, they were transcending a lot of that. And so um, I think, again, sports has done the same thing, right, where you're playing next to somebody who's totally different than you, maybe comes from a very different background than you. But we got a common enemy. We got to work together to yep. like beat these guys over here. And that always seems to like outdo any sort of little tensions that we may have. Like, I'm still going to cover you when you go out there, right? That sort of thing. And so, I don't know. I feel like those two mechanisms, sports and, and military service, are seemingly some of the best ways that we were able to get people who were different together to have honest, brutal conversations, but also had to just simply support one, one another. And like, I may have had to like stitch you up, right? I, yep. I had to, you know, who knows what, share my food with you. All of a sudden, when we start doing those sorts of things, like a lot of the differences sort of dissipate. And so, you know, that's one worrying thing about social media is that because we can all sort of cultivate our own little informational bubbles, like then in ways we protect ourselves from uncomfortable conversations. So if we are wanting to make sports kind of renewed and reformed, I think no better time than here and now right. when we need, you know, more of these institutions Unity. to kind of cut through the stuff that we see on social media to cut through a lot of the, you know, identity games that are played politically. Um, it just, because it is, life is more, far more transcendent than any of these, you know, big pillars that help to create our culture. Um, but what space are we really creating for young people to, to do that, to have those conversations? Um, it, it can't just be in a classroom either. It's gotta be in, in a place where we can even speak, I think, a little more authentically. But then I can also like prove my love for you because I'm going to go down the southern end and I'm going to like take a charge when you get beat on, off the <laughs> dribble. You know, I'm going to dive on that loose yep. ball and like skin my knees up and bleed for you. Right. That says far more than anything you're ever going to say in a conversation more often than not. And so you can actually act upon that love versus, you know, in a classroom, you kind of talk about intellectual things. It's all in the mind. But like, are you really willing to go out there and bleed for me? Like that has to happen in sports. And so, again, I don't think you get that special opportunity for, for very long as a coach, for very long as a player. Right. What are you going to do with that space and time? You know, are you going to reach out to that person in need? And like we've talked about, you know, those are some of the there's a reason I still talk to a lot of these folks and that these are some of my best friends until 
this day mm-hmm. is because of the experiences we've had together, but then also how much you get to know about somebody that you may have never even talked to, looked back at passing in the street, like wouldn't have thought twice about. I'm so thankful that I was forced into that sort of relationship in a way just by being on a team because then that forces you to like open yourself up and be vulnerable, but also just be open to also the pain and suffering and issues of other people, whether it's, you know, I got to take you, take you to practice every day, or, you know, I drove a lot of teammates to different destinations throughout the state Mm -hmm. whenever I would come home from college. And uh, sometimes I would even drive to Illinois, but even those conversations that I had, like, I'll never forget some of that. And just what I learned about the human experience that I'd never get in a textbook that I'd never get, you know, talking to maybe uh, people that went to the same high school as me. Um, so I just think that like far greater than any novel I could ever read, right? That stuff was acting upon me in such a strong way. And yeah, I, I guess that's a little bit of what's what's driven me down into the, the field of psychology was just like, I want to help people understand themselves. But, you know, in that process, you're also kind of understanding like the universality of everybody and mm-hmm. their suffering and, and their struggles. And, like yeah. you know, it's all there. We just need to be maybe better at talking about it and creating more space for those conversations. I think that's the critical kind of function of, of, of that. No, and that's what I enjoy, uh, you know, listening to you. You have, you know, obviously the background and in, in playing college basketball at University of Evansville and you know, having multiple years before that of, of developing, you know, some of those performance skills and team skills and now seeing you kind of in the psychology space and being able to give back. I mean, I think there's not a better person that, that is helping to be able to speak to this, to bridge that. And I know you're going to continue to do great things with, you know, working with the local Indianapolis community. And, and we've talked about even branching that out at some point and, you know, allowing your voice to be heard wherever, wherever that may be. And, um, you know, it's it's kind of cool to think, you know, even this podcast, you know, it's being broadcasted in 13 different countries now and, um, you know, having the impact to be able to educate people abroad as well as, uh, you know, here domestically is, is something that's really neat. And, you know, I just, I hope that, you know, a lot of you out there in the audience and the listenership just appreciate what Justin has brought to the table in regards to, you know, everything and in, from intrinsic motivation to, you know, the role of sports to some of the experiences that he's had, you know, through his his sports and um, evaluating, you know, reflection times and, and being able to just make space for renewal. And um, Justin, is there anything, you know, just, just to kind of wrap up the segment, um, you know, I, I always love to kind of leave people with some action points. What are some action points that, um, you know, you could you could advise on to, to help us uh, sign everyone off? So, you know, I, I guess if we're going to kind of leave you with a little bit of a task, all that I ask of you guys uh, for this episode is that you think a little bit more about what is the space I'm creating for myself to ask some of these questions, to get to that intrinsic motivation, um, to get to that kind of inwardness of why I do what I do. And so uh, just think about, you know, what's my why purpose? What's my cause? What's my belief? Right. What are my values in and around this thing that I'm doing? And, and, and as you're thinking about that, I can kind of relay a little bit of, of my experiences. Just, you know, so why do I teach? Well, I love being around young, energetic, open-minded people, right? I really love being around people that are doing creative things, that are, um, that are allowing, I guess, and as part of my job, it's allowing me to kind of make my own day, make my time and control that. Right. And it's also allowing me to provide a lot of positive impact on people around me. At the same time, the insurance is good. 
I like working out <laughs> in the gymnasium for free. Like those are also things I value, yeah. but those are also easy. So, yeah. you know, I ask you guys to kind of dig deep, right? Figure out really why you like to do what you do or why you're drawn to, you know, this person or this career. Um, and, and again, take that time, make that space for yourself. Um, and then hopefully next time I'm on, we can talk a little bit more about separating these intrinsic versus extrinsic motives in your life. What do they look like? So we're going to give you some more examples there, but really start trying to at least reflect and create space for this. And then next time we'll also bring in a little bit more of goal setting, long-term, short-term, and how we can structure that to get the most out of our time because it's very easy to waste time today. And I don't think anybody has time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> YouTube that. That's a funny, funny segment. No, Justin, I, I can't can't thank you enough, man. I'm so grateful for you coming on uh, the platform. And just uh, so you guys heard right, Justin will be a regular contributor to the Sports Squire platform moving forward. He's got a lot of really great insights that can really help you from a mental, psychological, spiritual perspective and um, you know, hopefully give you a, a sense of uh, a vantage point that you, you otherwise maybe wouldn't have had. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's nothing more important than that mental and wellness portion. And that's why when you go back and you look at the Sport, Sport Squire Wellness of Order operations, mental and spiritual is by far the number one, you know, base keystone of, of your overall wellness. And a lot of deep things we talked about today in regards to, you know, pain and development. And those are things that you have to navigate. And we just want to encourage you to find a friend, find family members, find a professional that you're able to talk to if you need to, to help you get through some of those trying times. But Justin, I've really enjoyed, you know, speaking with you today, talking about the role in sports and culture and society, and really looking forward to having you back on here soon. Yeah, appreciate it, Brad, and uh, hopefully more good stuff to come. Absolutely. Everybody else, have a great rest of the week. Thank you for listening to the Sports Squire podcast. Check out the show notes for anything you missed during today's episode. Click subscribe if you haven't already to ensure you get updates on the latest Sports Squire episodes. And remember, as a Sports Squire, your greatest self is found at the intersection of knowledge and action. Don't be normal, be a Sports Squire.